Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. I wanted to take a moment to thank all of our Patreon supporters and encourage all of our listeners to sign up to hear our exclusive bonus episodes available only to our Patreon supporters for as little as $2 a month. These episodes will be released every other Friday, beginning this week, with our returning guest, Chris Buckley, a former white supremacist who now speaks out against extremism with the nonprofit group Parents for Peace. We'll be offering a free preview of each bonus episode right here in our feed, which you can hear wherever you listen to podcasts. And as a part of this drive to keep the show going, I wanted to remind our newer listeners that we'll also be putting up our first year of episodes in the Patreon-exclusive archive, which will be the only place they can now be streamed or downloaded. We are so excited to start this new chapter of the show, and we hope you'll join us to keep the show going for years to come. And for today, I'm excited for you to hear the second half of my conversation with Dr. Willoughby Britton. Dr. Britton is a clinical psychologist, an associate professor of psychiatry and human behavior at Brown University Medical School, and the director of Brown's Clinical and Effective Neuroscience Laboratory. Her clinical neuroscience research investigates the effects of contemplative practices on the brain and body in the treatment of mood disorders, trauma, and other emotional disturbances. As a clinician, she's been trained as an instructor in mindfulness-based stress reduction and mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and somatic experiencing. She now specializes in helping meditators who are experiencing meditation-related difficulties and providing meditation safety training to providers and to organizations. It was a pleasure to speak with her, and I hope I get to speak with her again sometime soon. The feedback has been really overwhelming. People are really finding that this story, her research, the difficulties they've been having while still wanting to hold on to the positives of mindfulness have been now kind of explained. Things become clearer for people when someone can spell it out the way that Dr. Britton spells it out. And so I thank her for sharing her wisdom with us. And I look forward to having you hear the second part of my conversation with her now. Yes. I'm so excited that I, I get to ask this question to you. You know, what we're talking about here, talking around, might actually be like a basic human drive, a biological drive. And that is to have this pristine category, to have this thing, this, this it that is perfect and that we can love unconditionally. So my question is, where does that come from? And is it an attachment system process, I guess, is my question. Like I did some practice with um, a Christian minister and his practice was just to have Jesus hold him 
he came on a retreat with a bunch of us Buddhists. And so we were like, whoa, that's so crazy. And so he kind of explained it for us. And he said, well, he's like, it's perfect because, you know, Christ by definition is perfect. And so whatever relationships I've had, bad relationships with my mother or whatever, those don't have to play out. I can have a perfect relationship with Christ and like, you know, I can be held by that perfect relationship. And I was like, that's so awesome. That's so smart. This is a, a drive that's causing people to be horrible to each other. Even, you know, this is something that, that people kill for. Um, it must be important. Right. Do you think it's an attachment driven process? It's such a wonderful question. and. Yes, I think in the world that we're living in now with so much that's unknown, with COVID being this moving target, political unrest with so much division, people are looking for the oases. They need to have this space that has that quiet, that makes sense, that is their retreat and where they feel safe. And they don't want anything to take it away. And there is this great fear that suddenly they're not going to be able to either practice it or see it the same way. In terms of attachment, we deify things so that we can feel like this is the thing. This is the formula that we need. Everyone wants a formula. The first time that you realize your parent was wrong about something blows your mind. <laughs> what? The earth just shifted on its axis. And so there are some people then who will say, well, I guess that's just the way it is. Some people who, who I want to see as perfect might not always be perfect and that's okay. And others get driven needing to attach towards connecting with the thing that is perfect still in their eyes. And they're always searching for the next perfect thing and the next perfect thing. And that's also why some people do cult shopping. Mm. It is hard for a lot of people to think about something being taken away if they think there's nothing else. And one of the things that I wanted to be able to talk to you about is what else there is. Because if something is held up as the pinnacle and it is then uh, the parent that you've never had, and it becomes the wise therapist that you wished you had, and it becomes the thing that makes you feel that you can handle everything else in life. I wonder if people are so determined to hold on to that because left without that, then I think they feel like they're on this precipice, like they're just going to fall off a cliff. And it's good to know what other choices you have, if it's not working for you, if it's causing you more distress than calm, let's say. Um, but yeah, I think people do have this need and I think it is an attachment need and certain personalities don't necessarily grow out of that. Others can handle much more the both and that things are going to be imperfect. Like conspiracy theories, some people get involved in conspiratorial thinking because they were enlightened to the fact that people in positions of authority can't always be trusted. And then that message got generalized to a lot of other areas. And they need to be able to have this be their mission to make sure that they're not going to be lied to. This becomes their life. There are other people who know that politicians lie to them and then say, all right, and what's for breakfast? They can hold on to that and still have other things in their life. So I think that plays a big role too. You don't have anything else. Or if you also are more prone to anxiety, which makes you want to hold on to your anchors and attach, 
in that way, in a very strong way. And you approach this with much more fear than other people might be approaching it. And going back to the original question about wiring, how people connect with this. And so I'm wondering what you think about, about that. I mean, I have a couple of different thoughts. I mean, one, just going back to the attachment issue. And I was just thinking about, you know, adolescence or just like that period between age, like 12 and 25 or something where the relationships are often marked by this infatuation phase of like this person's perfect and then you actually if you're lucky you get to date them and then you're like oh actually they're not who I thought they were and you do this again and again and again until you start to see your your own mind's patterns of doing this projection and then trying to make them into the person that you want them to be and then eventually you know, it's, it's a, it's a developmental milestone to get the sort of mature relationship of like, this person's awesome and they've changed my life in many ways, but they're also not a panacea for everything. And also like, sometimes I need to break from them. So, so that's one of the kind of responses to your question, which is sort of like more on the solution end of things, which is having to grow up and have a more mature relationship with this thing, you know, and be like, it is really awesome and it has limitations. And, and so that, to, you know, that we can't just have this sort of infatuation level relationship with it. So that that's part of it is that maturation process. And yes, there is a tremendous amount of grief that has to go when you lose that fantasy of that all perfect thing. And you're right. Some people aren't willing to do that. I think the other piece is you know, again, going back to the question, why did you meditate? There are often lots of different answers within the same person. So sometimes it's like giving you a way to connect with yourself. Sometimes it's an emotion regulation strategy. Sometimes it's an excuse to, it's like a smoke break, like getting out, being able to take a ritualized break from whatever's going on. Sometimes it's being part of a group. Sometimes it's being part of a lineage, you know, or something bigger. Sometimes there's a, it's a, you know, there's a whole ideological meaning structure. And so to some extent, the other thing is basically getting the list of what those needs are that meditation fills and then figuring out whether there's something else that can fill that. And so at Cheetah House, we do refer a lot of people to trauma therapists, particularly somatic oriented trauma therapist, because there is a dimension to a lot of the practices that you learn there that have a lot of the goals that people originally had for mindfulness practice, which is a lot of, you know, is there's a way of calming the nervous system, but in a way that's very tailored to the person. So that's like, okay, check that box. That's one thing that you can do. Having a group of people that, you know, have a share, just community, you know, like, that's one of the worst things is that you, if you, you know, the one membership card to a Sangha is that you meditate. And a lot of people will sit there and like say the alphabet or, you know, replay movies. I don't do anything besides meditate just so they can still belong in the group. And it's like, okay, maybe there's another group that will, you can belong to that you don't have to meditate in. And people are sometimes so relieved that they just, they don't have to do that, which is really awful to watch, you know, just, you know, you know, oh, I don't have to meditate. And like, they're crying with relief. It's like, wow, this is intense. So I think just community and belonging, you know, it's just so important. Yes. Community and belonging. It is integral. And what's so interesting, and people have heard me talk about this on the show before, who stayed involved in their group 
for much longer after it had already kind of uh, started to turn a corner for them. And because they didn't want to lose their community, because as part of that, they had disengaged from the world outside or their family. This was now their new family. They spoke the same language. And so there was this unified force, but there was also this kind of perceived threat, overt, covert, where the relationships there were conditional. And I think when people get that sense that they have to stay and they have to believe or they have to keep up with the party line in order to hold on to these friendships, then you have this very confusing picture for a lot of people where they're staying because of fear, which I think is counterproductive to the whole idea of mindfulness, but that they get this sense uh, or they hear how people are talked about who leave the community or they're told to disengage from the people who have left and they don't want that to happen to them. It's one of the things that is the most powerful for a lot of people. Uh, that's why it's a part of a lot of religious groups practice to shun, basically. When you were talking, I was just thinking about Alexander Stein's work and the, the idea of disorganized attachment, you know, and that the thing that is the most comforting is also as a source of threat. And then you have your sort of approach nervous system turned on because you're looking for comfort and simultaneously your threat system. And like, you know, a lot of the, the 59 categories of, of meditation related symptoms are symptoms of dysregulated arousal. You know, I mean, they're looking a lot like disorganized attachment. And so I, I kind of wonder like how much that is like that when I kind of go back to my, my first statement about like how much are the social dynamics actually responsible for the symptoms themselves? Um, and, you know, that that kind of really confused system that's that's going turning on and off doesn't know whether it's a threat or a comfort is at play. So that that's one one thought response to what you're saying and the other is is the meaning piece and this is the other thing that Berger says is that it's you know having a having a meaning structure is absolutely you know a critical need of, of a human being and that is something that I hear a lot it comes up a lot in our support groups we run two support groups a week for meditators covering meditators you know and they're like my I spent you know 20 years you know learning this ideology and whether it's you know, straight out of Buddhism or whether it's the kind of psychologized form of, of emotion regulation, just how do you, how do you cope with emotions? They have practiced it so much that it is, you know, an intrinsic part of every moment. And now that it's basically betrayed them, like they are really at a loss to have, you know, a philosophy or even like, what, what should I even value? So I, I, so I don't have an answer to that one. And I think that that's also very intentional is that, you know, I couldn't possibly have an answer because that's their job, you know, but I can, I can hold the container to have the discussion about what people have found. And, and there, there is, you know, a kind of an array of different, you know, studying philosophy and existential philosophy and, and talking about value systems and how you go about choosing one. And, you know, we're kind of, we're kind of at that level where like we, we talk about the process rather than the values themselves. You know, having people be able, first of all, just to talk about their experience and have it be safe 
where they can say, I don't think that this worked for me. And to have someone say, yeah, it doesn't actually always work for people as opposed to, well, you weren't doing it right. It is incredibly healing just in that moment where they feel heard and not judged and they're not going to be having their hands slapped just because they're sharing what's true for them. And then I think having people talk about the process and having people also learn at what point they need to start noticing things and what to notice and what to do when they notice it and who to go to when they notice it. Because sometimes people will notice things and and they'll notice a negative impact on them. They'll then go to the person who's in charge who may or may not be conducting this in a healthy way. So either they get supported or they get shut down. And then if they get shut down, but they're still experiencing that, I think a good piece of advice is to not keep going back to the same person for affirmation because you're just not going to get it. And for clarification, you're just not going to get it. So I think having people understand what happened to them, that it's also through no fault of their own, because they've probably come out of systems where everyone else seemed to be benefiting or at least pretending to benefit to a certain degree, if it's that's part of the social construct. And that then you can be unconditionally accepting of them when they've come out of a situation typically that hasn't been. So there's so many of the things that we might take for granted in those spaces that are so monumental, even sort of before you've said anything that you think is deep at all. And I'm wondering, you know, I'm wondering to go back to sort of the the neuroscience, the positive, the negative, the increased cortical arousal. So let's talk about when it goes awry and also what the benefits are in looking at the science of it. And also you had mentioned that it has its own language around it. And I'm wondering about the mindfulness, if we can take out the mindfulness dictionary and if you can introduce us to some of the terms. You just asked for two gigantic downloads. Gigantic. Let's yes. start with the, the neuroscience first. So I think I initially, when we got our 59 categories, I was like, oh God, I'm going to have a whole like lifetime of trying to figure out what the neural mechanisms of these 59 categories are. So my, my background is in the neuroscience of the benefits of meditation. So I know like a lot of the neural mechanisms pretty well. Um, And what I realized was that a a lot of the mechanisms of benefits actually can account for a lot of the downsides. And so we don't have to come up with a special different alternate mechanism. It's the same. It's just, so I, I wrote a paper called, can mindfulness be too much of a good thing? Which is the idea of the, you know, the ubiquitous U-shaped inverted U-shaped curve where everything has an optimal level beyond which you can have, you know, you start to, you start to get trade-offs or negative effects. And that's, you know, true of any physiological process or, or psychological process. And so again, not, not, a mind-blowing idea that like mindfulness is just like everything else and is not an exception to the u-shaped curve but wow you didn't be amazed at how much pushback i got for that idea but anyway just to give you some ideas of some of the the u-shaped curve mechanisms i think my first 20 years of research were based on a model of you know prefrontal control over the limbic system which is one of the ways that we regulate emotions um, voluntarily you know, one of the mechanisms of meditation practice, particularly concentration practices like following your breath, is strengthening the, you know, executive function part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, and subsequently downregulating the limbic system and the amygdala. 
great. So if you have, if you come in with, you know, anxiety or too much emotion, down-regulating your emotions, having some control over the limbic system, super helpful, less reactive, more calm. It's all true and you can overdo it. So, you know, if you just take that same process and you just keep going, what's going to happen? Well, people don't have any emotions. They don't have any positive ones either. They don't have any negative ones, but they also don't have any positive ones. And they kind of, they overtrain their, their cortical limbic control system. And so that's like one example of just the same process gone too far. And you can, you can take a million other, you know, examples of that where mindfulness is about, you know, taking a step back from your emotions. Okay. Well, that's again, very helpful when, you know, when you're trying to like, not like lose it on somebody, but if that's the only thing that you do and how far back are you going to step? Are you still in your body? Are you still in the room? Like, what is there, you know, do we have a, do we have a, a sort of high, high level? Is there an optimal distance? And are there times when, when being distant is not the right thing to do? And this, the same thing for acceptance. When you have an emotion and it's really painful, the sort of mindful approach is often to be you know, accept and not resist the emotion, you know, not, don't try to intervene. Don't try to fix it. Just accept it. Or you can, you know, combine that with a sort of detached observer thing and, and say that it's just, it's just weather patterns moving through the system and they don't mean anything. They're not necessarily accurate representations of reality. And so again, that could be a way of talking yourself down from, you know, some ruminative, I'm a failure kind of you know, negative self-talk or something like that. It's going to be a very useful tool, but you can also see how having internalized the idea that your perceptions and emotions are not reality is basically fertile ground for gaslighting, you know? So like it makes people very vulnerable. And like when you were saying before, like, when do you, you know, people start need to start noticing things. You know, and it's like, well, they've, they can notice a way, but like they've already learned to systemically systematically disregard their emotions and thoughts as passing weather patterns. So, you know, you have to actually start to undo that process, which is now automatic because they're so well practiced at it. So again, like, so all these things are really good tools to have and they can be overused and they can be weaponized by, by, and again, by another person, but also just, you don't even need another person. Right. That's true. You don't need another person. You can find that then your reaction time is slowed. Your ability to see something for what it is also can be slowed down that someone might be being abusive towards you or a situation is unhealthy for you because you're in this other space that you've learned to go to or stay in when things are uncomfortable. Just a quick question before I forget. Is there sort of an optimal range of time that people meditate before it gets to be potentially unhealthy? Yeah. So this goes back to your very first question, which is sort of like, what are the risk factors both internally within the person, you know, kind of a temperamental or, or constitutional risk factors, and then the practice related risk factors. So again, I think it's, there's a lot of different you know, symptoms that you can develop. So I think we have to kind of be specific to those, but I will say, at least from my own research, 
another another mechanism is this hyperarousal mechanism. And so I think, you know, if you think about attention mm-hmm. and you think about systems of arousal, I think it's, you don't need to be a neuroscientist to understand that those things overlap. So everything that you ingest to make yourself be able to pay attention better, right? Coffee, Adderall, cocaine, whatever it is, whatever your thing is, it's going to make you, well, one, not sleep very well. And two, if you, if you ingest enough of it, for some people, it's going to start causing anxiety and panic attacks, right? So you can see there's a continuum on being able to pay attention and also that sort of anxiety hyperarousal thing. And so it makes sense. Like if you take a drug that increases your attention, if you take too much of it, it causes panic. The same could apply to meditation that like you start to like crank up your attention system. And if you keep cranking it beyond optimal, because you were told that like more is better, more is better then you know, you start having panic attacks and then they're like, well, just keep going because that's a sign of progress. You know, you're, you know, and then they just keep going. And eventually, you know, your system can only get so aroused when, before you either end up in the emergency room because you haven't slept for a week, which is one option, or the system just says, you know, this is way too much and it shuts down and the person dissociates. So those are sort of two endpoints where people end up. So in my research um, on sleep, we found, and this is like one study, so should not be taken as any kind of like, you know, anything I say should be, you know, you should be based on your own experience and not scientific data, which is like the opposite of what scientists should say. But in this case, always test this out on yourself. We basically found that less than 30 minutes of practice, and this was, you know, kind of standard mindfulness-based stress reduction, focusing on your, on your breath, so concentration practice or open monitoring where you're just sort of watching your thoughts, less than half an hour tended to be sleep promoting. Um, so there was called, it was called a non-monotonic effect where you had like the, you know, regression line goes across uh, the change. And so basically if you have less than, ha- less than 30 minutes, we saw people sleeping better. And for more than 30 minutes, we saw that was sort of the cutoff of where we saw it cross the midline where people started sleeping worse. So I guess the take home message is if you are meditating and you seem to be, it seems to be causing insomnia, cut back on the the amount to less than 30 minutes. And that's like a, at least a, a starting point. You know, the question of how much practice is too much or is there a right amount? That depends on what you're trying to do. It depends on who you are. It depends on whether you have a trauma history. Like there's not really a good answer to that with averages. But we, you know, looking at like large epidemiological studies, we do find that they're like the things that predict more adverse effects are amount of practice. So you are going to have, you know, the, the longer you're exposed to something, you're going to have more chances of having the experience. So amount of practice is definitely a predictor, but that does, that does not mean that a small amount of practice is necessarily 100% safe. And so we have lots of people at Cheetah House who downloaded an app, did less than 30 minutes a day and ended up with, a, with an anxiety disorder. So that happens too. But yes, going on a long retreat is, is definitely a higher risk. Similarly, we also found that having a trauma history and having a history of mental health problems was a risk factor, but that does not mean that not having a trauma history 
and not having a mental health history means that you're necessarily safe. So we found plenty of cases where people said, I like literally, like I had the best childhood. I have no mental health problems. I was happy before I started meditating and everything went to hell after that. We also have cases like that. So I just want to like, I think that often when people get the risk factor data, they just, it turns into a, a victim blaming where it's like, oh, it's only people that have trauma history. And it's like, that's not what risk factor means. Right. Okay. Okay. So, so interesting. I'm curious about the language that you were talking about that is connected with mindfulness. Well, I think that, you know, back to this topic of these invisible virtues, I hear a lot of words around that. So words like freedom, compassion, well, happiness is one of those kind of, even mindfulness. I mean, mindfulness can mean being absolutely intimate with something. And it can also mean being detached. So you have these like almost opposite you know, you can be very, very close and intimate to something and, or you can be as far, you know, having an extra distance. Well, you can't have both of those at the same time. So mm-hmm. sometimes they're like the opposite thing. I mean, it's funny when I hang out in like mindfulness spaces and I haven't been them in them a long time, it's, it's so much more obvious to me that there's a certain kind of positive affect requirement. I, I do a lot of trainings for meditation teachers and one of my evaluations, like I got you know, Dr. Britton is so sarcastic as if that was like a sin or something. There can be a little bit of enforced neutrality of, of emotion and, and everyone is really, really like nice and polite to each other. Yeah. Just a lot of, of very positive interactions, um, which I know are, it feels very performative to me. Um, and I, and I kind of know it's performative because the, all of it drops when it, when I started yep. talking, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> and I never, and it wasn't uh-huh. like that before when I was, when I was saying all the right things, I got, I got the performative blessings. And now that I, I'm not saying the right things, I get the same exact people are giving me a hard time. You know, sometimes people will come to me and say, I don't know why you have a negative view of such and such group. It's often not that I've come out and said something negative, but I may have had a guest on who talked about their experience and they'll say, I've never had a bad experience with this organization. And I go, great. That's great. Would you mind just trying one thing though? Would you mind at one point saying the word no? Like, was this helpful? No. Or are you going to come back to the next retreat? No, just try it or say maybe, or I'm not sure, but not an automatic affirmative response. And then let me know, because that's when it, at, in that transitional moment, you're going to find out a lot about the health of an organization, the health of a partner, if they can tolerate being told maybe or no. But I also find it so interesting because it feels to me like what you're doing is actually helping the field so much more than the people who need to just speak about it in positive terms, because it clearly has positives and it clearly has negatives. And I know this oversimplistic in terms of terminology, but you know, across the board and um, pendulum can swing depending on so many things that you just mentioned. And if this is something that can be positive, why not? 
fine tune it? Why not be open to finding out how to make it not destructive, or if it does become so, how to understand that so that you can prepare people so that you can assess them to see if they're the kind of the right fit for this so that it is a better experience for more people. I I feel like in, in you saying, you know, we have to look at this and look at it really honestly. You're saying, I care enough about this to want to do this, to take this risk, to be able to point out the the negative because I want it to work and it hurts me when it doesn't. And, you know, I, I, I think that for people who might see you as this trader, not that I want to call anyone a trader, but I feel like people are just holding to this is perfect. You can't touch it when it's clearly not. They're betraying the system. They're betraying what it could be. And so I, I would hope that people would see you ultimately as a, a champion for it because you're willing to do this. Thanks. <laughs> I mean, that's a nice idea. And it's funny, I think in my mind, I have this saying like, you think I'm the devil, but I'm actually the dark angel. I think one of the biggest threats to the entire mindfulness industry is it's overhype and it's over positivity and it's sugar-coated panacea-ness, you know, and that's, that's, that's what's going to do it in. It's not going to be the adverse effects. Adverse effects are, that's just part of the process of any treatment coming into medicine. But yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I read Thomas Kuhn's, you know, the making of a scientific revolution. I know that at some point, the people who all, all the sort of aggression against me is going to turn into like, oh, yes, we knew this all along. And, the, you know, that, that's <laughs> going to happen at some point. And it, and it actually already has happened a bit. But there's also that that middle place, which has been like the last 10 years of my life, where, you know, I'm not I'm not made of like titanium, you know, like I, I, it takes a toll on, you know, your system and like all of my colleagues, like my entire scientific community is like, it's like living in a cult every single day where you are, you know, so I don't know if you have any advice for whatever you're going to call us, the truth tellers, the, the whistleblowers, that category of people, like if there is a, a self-care recommendation that you have for us. So I have a few, just as you're saying that. Um, one is to always have a clear sense about considering the source of the information that's directed towards you. What is it also that they're worried about? And why is it that they feel the need to attack you? And to not that you have to meet each person individually and have a long conversation with them, but just to know that so much of it comes out of anxiety and also comes out of this need for it to be the answer and a worry about you chipping away at that vision uh, when there aren't other choices. So one of the things that I think is good to provide for people is to say, this is a great thing if it's used kind of in a healthy way. If this doesn't work, you can also try this and this and this. And so that sometimes calms people down that they don't have to take Prozac, they can take other things. The other thing that I think is important to do is to say that when people are, are militant about this, what I think what they're saying is, I 
feel like the more that, you know, Willoughby talks about this, the less this is going to be made available to the world. There isn't that sort of connection. In fact, it's going to still be made available to the world, but I think in a healthier way. So you're not taking anything away. I think you are just refining and defining and um, making it safer. So, you know, similar to sort of how science works in general. Science is not based on what we know. It's based on how we integrate what we know based on what we're learning now and put it together. We always put it together. And for people also when they attack, a lot of people are just afraid of change and they don't want something that they have needed to be perfect to be seen as less than. And so they're saying so much about themselves, even though in their language, they're saying something about you, but it has nothing to do with you. The other part is that when you are dealing with getting so much pushback, I feel like there's a way to approach that in a positive way by saying, I love that there are so many people who care about this, who also see the benefit. We're actually on the same team. So the more that you attack, the more nervous you are about this being taken away, the more you're saying to me that this is a really good thing or this has been life-changing for you. And that's great. And let's make sure it's the same for other people too. And that's all I'm saying. And so it's sort of changing the language, but helping people see that you're on the same team. Some people won't believe it because sometimes people just need a cause and they can take this on as their cause celeb and their fight and this is their fight. But I think for people to be able to know that you can see and you can respect where this is coming from. But yeah, I think a lot of times going back to the pronouns, a lot of times things are going to be said about you that are really about the source of that attack. And they're saying something about themselves and they're worried, they're fearful. And it's like if I have a bit of a fear of heights. So I know that if I'm in a small plane, let's say somebody decided to just open the door and say, oh, by the way, we're not landing. You're going to be skydiving down. I will attack that person because I am sure that I'm going to die. I am sure that that's going to be the end and I'm going to be panicked. So Panic, I think, really does make people get much more vicious and attacking than they would normally be. And so to address it as fear, what are you worried about? Then you're the adult in the conversation. And if someone is kind of tantruming and you can say, tell me what, tell me what's so worrisome to you. What are you worried about? So that, that's a very kind and compassionate response. Perhaps you are the adult in this conversation. <laughs> you know, I, I think about like Leah Remini and her not just talking to survivors, but also showcasing the actions of the group, the retaliation actions. It, do you think there's a place for that? Because that was not one of the things that you just suggested to me. You weren't like, yeah, just post them on the internet, you know, which is sort of my inclination to be like, you want to see what the nice compassionate Buddhists have to say? Because there's, you know, I mean, you don't even have, they're already posted on the internet. There's like, go to any comment section. But I I just wonder like, if you think there's any utility to kind of, you know, exposing that for what it is, which is aggression. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, if it is dangerous or if it's threatening, then, you know, it gets bumped up to the next level where you do have to get other people involved. I'm really sorry that that's happened to you. You know, Scientology's come after me, not not to the same degree that Leah Remini has had to deal with, but 
actually did an interview where I was interviewed next after her. And I saw the big black cars with blackened windows following her limo, actually, <laughs> out of this hotel. And they were being followed everywhere. And um, she just waved at them like, hey, it must be Tuesday. What I think is important to do is to do what makes you feel supported. If it helps you feel not alone with this, that you can let other people know what you're going through and what you've been hearing and what you've been seeing and what people have been writing, then you can do it. It could be in an attempt to have people see that these words are actually going to come back to bite them, not you. It's kind of betraying their reputation. And so if they don't want to be seen in a certain way, then they need to not write these things. And if they've already put it out in a public way, you can keep reposting it if you want, because it's not private domain. So you can say, listen, this is what I'm up against. This is what we're up against. This is what truth tellers these days in a lot of, a lot of realms are up against. And I want you to know, and if that helps, again, if that helps you feel like then you'll have a greater sense of community understanding around you about what you're going through, then yeah, absolutely. I do think that there are people who say things that are really, you know, shameful and they're kind of hoping that it won't be egg on their face and you can make sure that it is because this, well, this is the source of it. want you to know. And if that is a deterrent, if you need that as a deterrent, then do it as a deterrent. Sure. Why not? And at the same time, to say that something has gone wrong here, and it's not that you're saying what you're saying, but that there's something built into the system that is creating this ferocity or that is creating this sense that we need to band together and protect it or else, but that it really is sort of counter what people see as the sort of the mindful way to be to a, sort of the popular vision of what that is. They're not acting in a very mindful or Buddhist way. And the other thing that is important to do is to not expose yourself to more of it than you can handle. Because there is something that happens with uh, the internet that invites people in the facelessness of it to be much more cruel behind the scenes than they would be to your face. And so people are going to be a lot meaner and they're going to make more personal attacks in a way that they would never do if they were calling you on the phone, I think, or, or showing up uh, at a class that you're teaching. And so it's a way, it's a space for a lot of people to let out the anger that they have about a variety of things where they haven't had a voice in other areas of their life. So they're using this channel to have that voice. So you're the recipient of their anger about multiple issues usually. So I, I would want you to see it as such and to know that this is something that a lot of people face. A lot of people who are on the internet who post videos, people who call themselves influencers, sometimes they stop and they are afraid to leave their home. Because I do think that that in that space, people will say, I'm mad about my childhood and I'm mad about that I just lost my job. And I, oh, uh, I just found this way to unleash all of that. I'm going to do that on Willoughby. And, you know, thanks. Uh, but I, I really don't want you to, if you can help it, to take it as personally as it seems and as it feels and to redirect it back to them and to say, 
I'm going to, you know, until further notice, I'm going to be reposting all the things that have, are being sent to me. I think you can also put a heading somewhere and let people know that. I've gone one step further, which is to start coding it in a qualitative research study is like start documenting these responses as, you know, part of, part of the picture. It's not just me. I'm not the only one. This is, a, you know, this is how the system works. People are getting retaliated against. Yes. And so that's, it's interesting because we're thinking in similar ways to this. When I first started doing the podcast, within the first year, I think it was, I interviewed a man who was raised in South Africa. He's now a psychologist and he's, uh, he's white and talked about the systemic racism and how it gets under your skin and how, uh, what it was like for him growing up um, during apartheid and how shameful it is and et cetera, et cetera. And there was so much hate in response that he got, that I got from people where we were saying that there is so much vitriol and that there is so much personal accusation. And they were saying exactly what we were saying about what the problem is when you are um, in a system that's telling people how to think uh, and what's okay to think. And they were proving our points over and over and over again without realizing it. So we did a follow-up show where we just read all the comments and saying, see, yep. And this point that we made here about what it can create in you psychologically, yep. Look at these 15 responses that are exactly in that kind of language, et cetera. And so, yeah, I like that idea because then you're reclaiming it. You're taking over, you're taking charge. And you're saying, I can use this all for the better, betterment, I think, of the mindfulness community, which they're not realizing yet. I can't remember which wise person said this, but I think it might have been Judith Herman. Her book has become my like my new Bible. She said, focus on the victims and not the perpetrators. Um, and so to really like put most of my emotional energy towards the people that I'm trying to help rather than like the people that are maybe, you know, the ones that are ready, basically. <laughs> The ones that are ready and are asking for help, put your energy to them. And the ones that aren't ready, like, you know, don't waste your energy on them. And got plenty of people. I have a three-month waiting list. So plenty of people who, who, are, who want the help that I have to give. So, Yeah. And I've been at this long enough to be able to now have clients who say, oh, yeah, I was one of those people who harassed you. I was one of those people who followed you home. I was one of those people who posted that article about you making up a ton of things. Yep, that was me. I have now left that system because I realized that they made me think that it was for the greater good that I was doing this. But in retrospect, I was just being mean and it wasn't helping me or anyone else to do this. So sometimes people do think that, that they believe this message is for the greater good and it's not at all. And a lot of people come out of that and realize that there was something that was prompting them to behave this way, or they were being pushed, or they're in a community where they want to solidify their place in that community. And this is the way they prove their allegiance. So again, it's self-serving, but you're the one who's the recipient of it. But a lot of people are jockeying for position. It's a competitive community in some circles. So they're being kind of told to be mean and they're getting lauded for being mean. Okay. So anyway, we could talk about that a lot. And at any time, you're welcome to, to call. We'll schmooze about it and go over other ideas. But I love that you're doing this. And I love how much you care 
and what you're kind of willing to go through that you shouldn't have to because you're not doing anything wrong by saying, hey, let's look at this together. Well, I think that one of the cool things that's happening is just how since 2017, like before that, there were almost no studies. And now it's just like, now they're just one after the other. There's a whole new field now. So I love that. It was so nice to talk to you and so nice to connect. I'm so happy to learn from you and learn about you. And I wish you the best. I wish you good luck. I wish you strength. And if there's any way I can help run interference, let me know. Uh, I've been there. And uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon. Yeah, it was great to meet you. And yeah, I look forward to more. Sounds great. One more thing before you go. I loved talking to Willoughby. I think that she has done something that is so difficult. She's been through so much. And it's hard to be the truth teller. It's hard to be someone who wants to be able to see the both and, the gray, the space in between. So many people want something to be along this continuum, but really from one pole to the next, either all good or all bad. But just as with most things, they're not. They're somewhere in between. They can be all good up into a point when you notice something's going awry. And it could be that you need to give up that practice or it could be that you just need to shift it. And what I found so compelling to talk to Dr. Britton about was the harassment that she's been getting just by saying, yeah, you know what? I love this, but sometimes this other thing can happen. And I want you to know about it because I don't want this thing that I love to hurt you. That's it. That's all she's saying. There's no need to harass her for that. It's like telling you what the side effects could be from taking something. And so I think it's responsible and I think it's respectful. And I'm sorry that the respect is not coming back to her in the way that she is actually showing it to others by taking this risk, nor should it even be a risk. It should just be okay to tell the truth. Something else she mentioned is this idea of positive affect requirement. This is something I hear about quite a lot, although this was the first time I had heard those three words together, and I like learning new phrases, so thank you, Dr. Britton. There is something so monumentally important for people who are controlling other people, for people who are trying to convince themselves or convince others that this thing is the best thing ever, where if you don't seem so happy, if you actually are becoming upset or agitated, there's this constant redirection. And you're told that, again, you're doing something wrong. But with this, what also happens is that you're supposed to appear happy. You're supposed to appear calm, which means that for many people, they're hiding how they're really feeling. And 
there are people who I've talked to who were also born and raised in certain kinds of communities where they come out not knowing how to feel what they're feeling. <laughs> what am I feeling? I don't know, because I was sort of told that I only had a couple of feelings I was allowed to feel. I was allowed to feel fear, and I was allowed to feel happiness, and I was allowed to feel gratitude or even elation. But I wasn't allowed to seem sad, disappointed, even angry. And a lot of people who would come forward in some of these groups would say, you know, something's really bothered me and it's making me feel bad. And the stories I hear over and over are that the response is, you don't feel bad. This is all part of the plan or this is how you're supposed to be feeling. You don't realize that this is all wonderful. And sort of people are sort of swept along a wave that detaches them from their core, from their self, the thing that's registering inside of them. They learn to ignore it. People who want to offer you something that they say is the best thing ever want to look out at a room full of smiling people because it confirms for them that they were right or for people who are charlatans, it confirms for them that they'll be able to get a huge following and they'll be able to make a lot of money if this seems to be turning a lot of people on and making them happy all at once. There is a story that I've told on the podcast, but a long time ago, and I think about it for this. There were these two sisters who came to see me after having left a particular group that was a very controlled community. Neither of them were happy. Each of them left at different times, a couple months after the other, but they joined at the same time. And when they met in my office, I said, tell me a little bit about why you stayed and why you left. And they focused on why they stayed. And the why they stayed part was fascinating. The younger sister said, I was so unhappy almost from the start. I didn't like the way I was being treated. There were some of the members who were kind of leering at me and made me feel very violated. And I was exhausted. But every time I looked at my older sister, she had a smile on her face. So I thought, well, this must be okay then. And maybe I'm just not getting it. So I'd work hard so that I could feel the way she looked like she felt. And then I couldn't do it anymore. And I just had to go. It was the younger sister who left first. So then I asked the older sister why she stayed when she said she was unhappy. And she said, because I had brought my sister into this and I would have felt tremendously guilty if I kind of showed from the start that I was unhappy because I took her away from her life and I convinced her this was going to be a great thing because that's what I thought at the time. But it quickly turned. But I needed to smile all the time because everyone in the group was supposed to smile all the time. And I thought that maybe I'm just not getting it. I'm not opening my heart up enough to this. And if I don't look happy, and this is something that maybe she could be benefiting from, then I'd be kind of convincing her or persuading her to leave something that could offer these truths and the answers to her. So each of them stayed because when they looked 
at the other sister. The other sister was smiling, but neither of them were happy. And when you have a situation that's like that, you know that people have been given the message of you have to be happy. You have to like this. You also have to show that you are getting it. And you need to match the people around you so that you don't stand out because you might be called on the carpet. Or if this is for someone's salvation or happiness, if you seem not so happy, you could be taking people away. You could be making them question and then taking away any chance they have at happiness and the answers. So what we learn from these kinds of stories and with Dr. Britton's telling of people sort of needing to have this positive affect requirement is that there should be no requirement to have an affect at all that is a group affect, that is a way that everyone is supposed to be looking, everyone is supposed to be feeling, because every human being is different. And it can't be that everyone in a room all feels the same way. So if you find yourself in a situation like that, where everyone is smiling in the room except for you, know that you're not the only one who is unhappy or who is questioning. There are many people there who have just learned that it's better to smile than not. So really, never feel like you are the lone one who is feeling differently. But what's also important is that anything that's healthy makes room for that. Anything, any group, any leader, any practitioner who's healthy, any therapist will make room for that. That a technique is going to work for some people, but not for others. And that's okay because we're not machines. And so again, if you're in a situation where that is not okay, then the situation itself is not okay. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at indoctrination podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website, at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.